Hey everyone, it's Grace, alone. No Madeline here, and she will not be here for the duration of this episode. We are doing something a little bit different, or that is to say, I'm doing it by myself. Um, We are having a super busy June, and we're just not going to have time to record and release our next full-length episode until the end of the month. But I've been reading a few books that I've been wanting to talk about on the podcast, but at the same time, they don't really fit into a full-length normal episode. Um, So I thought I'd do something a little special. I'm just going to call it Grace's Reading Corner and talk about each of these books. Uh, The first one is one that is a new work by an author we have covered, Gail Carson Levine. We have episodes on Ella Enchanted and The Two Princesses of Bamar, so definitely go check those out if you're also a fan. But I wanted to read her newest book, Ogre Enchanted, because it is set in Kyria, the same kingdom that Ella Enchanted is set in, and it sounded really fun. So I did that. I wrote a piece about it that I'm going to be you know, producing as a podcast for this episode, but that's also going to be up on our website as a blog post. So if you've been listening to the podcast, but wishing it were in blog form instead, now is the time to seize this opportunity. Our website is dragonbabiespodcast.com if you want to go check that out. So without further ado, Grace's Reading Corner on Ogre Enchanted by Gail Carson Levine. Spoilers throughout for Ella Enchanted and Ogre Enchanted. I am a near-lifelong Gail Carson Levine fan, with Ella Enchanted making its way into my life around third grade, which is also the year it was published, 1997. I followed her very closely, or as closely as you could as a child without internet access, and I read Dave at Night, her historical fiction novel, The Wish, which is sort of a modern-day fantasy realism novel, and then loved the release of the Princess Tales novellas and, of course, The Two Princesses of Bamar. The Two Princesses came close to achieving that perfect fantasy sweet spot that Ella Enchanted occupied for me with a fascinating and atypical female lead, a delightfully bonkers magical reality, a cadre of fantastical supporting species, including one of my favorite dragons in literature, and a sorcerer who makes comforting cloud blankets for his friends. But Ella came first and will always hold a special place in my reading history. Ella Enchanted has reached the sort of universally beloved status among women of my age that indicates just how instrumental it was in raising a generation of voracious female readers seeking disobedience and fractured fairy tales. I credit that book with instilling a good portion of my love of satire and meta-fantasy. I followed it with other funny, complex fantasies, including The Enchanted Forest Chronicles by Patricia C. Reedy, The Chronicles of Crestomancy by Diana Wynne-Jones, and The We Free Men by Terry Pratchett. And we do have episodes on books from all of those series if you're interested in checking them out. Ella Enchanted is a crucial stepping stone to those more challenging works because it is an exceptionally nuanced and unique YA fantasy that can be read on different levels. There's the exploration of forced teen marriage as fostered by an abusively neglectful father and actively abusive stepmother, the power of language within different cultures, 
the white noble's xenophobia and racism against the residents of Aortha, the series of aching and unsent love letters from Ella to Char. Ogre Enchanted has to follow all of this, which is no small feat. And yet it's still disappointing when it has moments where it fails. While it was a super enjoyable read, Ogre Enchanted didn't do as much as I was hoping it would to build on Ella's legacy. Of course, I was still incredibly delighted to return to Ella's world, and the book has some wonderful strengths alongside some of the problems. Evie's not-so-secret curse. I was concerned by Evie's curse from the start of the book. The foundational element of the story is a bit tough to overcome. Maybe I have just suffered through one too many childhood viewings of Shrek, but I am not intrigued by Evie's transformation into an ochre. When comparing Lucinda's curse for Evie and blessing for Ella, there's infinitely more conflict and discovery to mine from Ella's predicament of automatic obedience versus Evie's ogrehood until or if she accepts a marriage proposal. When comparing Lucinda's curse for Evie and her blessing for Ella, there is infinitely more conflict and discovery to mine from Ella's predicament of automatic obedience versus Evie's ogrehood until or if she accepts a marriage proposal. As readers, we're fascinated by how Ella will manage to grow, develop, and make her own voice heard when plagued by a spelled obedience that is, at its best, personhood stifling, and at its worst, actually life-threatening. Will her determination to voice her real thoughts and feelings win out? How will she find these little super funny, subversive ways to express herself along the way. When the curse slash blessing is finally broken, it's through sheer willpower and selflessness as she refuses to marry Prince Char and possibly put his life and the kingdom in danger, although she wants nothing more than to be with him. The process of Ella suffering through and breaking her spelled obsequiousness not only entertains the reader, but brings us closer to a highly developed character and invests us in her journey. Evie's curse has a different effect. Aside from an ogre transformation being inherently less intriguing than forced obedience, just because it's something that we've seen many more times, it doesn't provide the same opportunity for character development. Some of this is due to Evie's age, 15, and limited world experience. Evie is a teenager through and through, and Levine uses her ogreism to exaggerate stereotypical teen traits. Evie is blisteringly hormonal, with a frequent tingle, as she calls it, that she can't fully assign to either hunger or horniness. She is both obsessed with her appearance, yet suddenly self-conscious and concerned about being unattractive, bathing again and again and removing her ogre facial hair. She can't stop thinking about every eligible bachelor as a possible husband. And while this is superficially because getting engaged will free her from a curse, there are flights of fancy that feel more like teenage fantasy than problem solving. Because of these repetitive fixations, aside from her devotion to healing and medicine, which are significant, Evie doesn't have the chance to display too much more of a personality than being hungry, horny, or self-flagellating when it comes to who she truly is moment to moment. Ella Enchanted is a clear reworking of Cinderella, and Ogre Enchanted a less straightforward retelling of Beauty and the Beast. 
But the missing component in the latter is Evie's internal journey. She doesn't start out as a bad person like the spoiled prince in Beauty and the Beast. She's a teenage healer who views all of Kyria's different races and peoples as equally deserving of her medical care. and She does her best to provide it to all of them. Ella's journey is completely internal, and Evie's largely external. I don't believe that every protagonist needs to achieve some kind of moral growth or even change much at all. But the curse does need to have a narrative point, and I am just not fully convinced that there is one as far as Evie's character is concerned. She ends up entering into the same engagement that was the reason for her curse, She does get to practice medicine on a wider scale and play a significant role in averting widespread plague, but she knew from the start of the book that she wanted to be a lifelong healer, and she was always professionally focused. All that said, while Evie's curse may not have the same fundamental richness as Ella's, Levine does make good use of its potential. The curse allows for an interesting exploration of the other in a traditional fantasy setting. Evie, as an ogre, is outside of polite society, and her former friends and community have a violent mob mentality toward her, even after she saves hundreds of lives during a deadly outbreak. They continue to view her as a predator. To add to her otherness, Evie is also forced to undergo her trials from a much more modest standpoint than Ella, who was born into a wealthy family and household, Although her privilege is gradually stripped away over the course of the book, she does remain a noble throughout, which Evie is not. Evie has to turn to her resourcefulness again and again, just to be able to find the copious amount of meat that she needs to sate her ogre appetite. Evie's time with the band of ogres is the most interesting part of the book, and it was where I felt like Livian was having the most fun with the writing. The ogres of Ella and Ogre Enchanted are compelling ones, especially compared to typical ogres of fantasy. They are deeply intelligent and cunning and have a vast command of languages. Being able to actually learn how the ogre's persuasion called zine works was fascinating after just the touch of ogre culture that we get in Ella Enchanted. Evie's description of creating a space around fear with her voice and filling it with pleasant feelings and memories is well-written and the concept is intriguing. The ogre's difficulty of coexisting with seemingly every other race, including a mysterious bone-deep dragon rivalry, makes for a great read and an examination of an often overlooked fantasy group. The violence and abruptness of the ogre band's end was horrifying, as is the desecration of their remains. Because we lose our ogre time about halfway through the book, the memory does fade by the end, and the story just doesn't quite reach that height again, in my opinion. The problem with Lucinda. Lucinda is undoubtedly another strength of Ogre Enchanted. She is infuriating, illogical, and wonderfully reckless, and the book's noble settings are populated with so many kind and thoughtful characters, other than my main monster, Sir Peter, that I thrilled every time Lucinda popped into the room. Other than Peter and Eleanor, she's also one of the character callbacks to Ella Enchanted, as she's the source of Ella's blessing. I honestly want a hundred books about Lucinda's desperate, woefully misguided attempts to improve the world around her. 
Ogren Janet's problem with Lucinda is that she actually gets something right. Wormy and Evie do get married. And while Evie wasn't ready for that yet, at Wormy's first foolish proposal, they ultimately give Lucinda her way and prove her proposal meddling effective. If Lucinda hadn't showed up for the first proposal, she wouldn't have cursed Evie. If Evie hadn't been cursed, she wouldn't have gone on a journey of self-discovery and meat stick eating. If she hadn't gone on that journey, she wouldn't have realized that she did slash does slash could love Wormy. And since she spends the majority of that time away from Wormy without exposure to him, I'm inclined to believe that the first tense is accurate, which means that Lucinda was right all along to encourage her to accept. I may be splitting hairs here, but when a fairy is doing something so profoundly problematic as forcing women to accept any marriage proposal that comes their way, regardless of the circumstances, there needs to be a bit more of the narrative devoted to at least attempting to convince that character to realize their issues. Nobody really tries to engage with Lucinda logically or mention that marriage as an institution has been historically used to trap women in unsafe, unhealthy, and unwanted situations, which is even weirder because Ellen Enchanted does explore forced teen marriage through Peter's attempts to marry 14-year-old Ella off to a much older Earl. And maybe that's because Lucinda's just insane, but I was hoping there'd be at least some kind of attempt instead of the throw my hands up in the air, she's a wacky proposal fairy attitude that every character up to and including the protagonist seems to adopt. Really, I was just hoping for more Lucinda, maybe a creative curse at Wormy and Evie's ultimately successful proposal or an unkind blessing at their wedding. She is an absolute psycho and I don't understand how she can exist, which is kind of what an evil fairy should be all about. Which brings me to my next point. Narcissists are all around us. I adore Ogre Enchanted's primary villains, Lucinda and Peter. And while Lucinda has delusions that she is helping and enriching the lives of those around her, Peter is explicitly dead behind the eyes. I was struck by the oddity of a fantasy character who wasn't a full-on chaotic evil minor deity of some kind, articulating that they don't care about the feelings or existence of other people, except as how they can serve as useful. Peter's sociopathy is explicit and also articulated several times. The first is when Evie zines him and asks whether he cares for his betrothed, Eleanor. I became a merchant for the sake of beauty and to become rich. I adore Lady Eleanor's outer perfection, which I'd love even if she were as unintelligent as a worm and as unpleasant as a wasp. I'm fond of her family's position and their money. I don't care about anyone's goodness. I made her love me, as I made you. He follows up with, I surprise myself. I wouldn't kill a person or cause a person to be killed. Stunning himself with the realization that he's not a full-blown murderer. After becoming engaged to Eleanor, Peter tells her, Affection, darling, is for display. When we're alone, I prefer to be unencumbered. He then reveals that Lucinda's quote-unquote blessing, that they will always keep their promises to one another, his being that he will love Eleanor as much as he loves her right now, means that he will never love her at all. Peter calls his talents 
my kind of persuasion, and he uses them to become crown prince, if only for a brief period. He has his own blessing, whether magical or innate, to bamboozle everyone around him for his own gain. Getting this insight into his true feelings, or lack thereof, provides a unique look at a true narcissist in fantasy. Ironically, Peter may be the character who gains the most development from the prequel. Not because he changes in any way, but because we get a greater understanding of why he is the kind of soulless creature who so thoroughly disregards his daughter's well-being and safety in the years to come. Wrapping up Loose Ella Ends I'm possibly being unfair in treating this largely as an Ella Enchanted extension rather than its own distinct work. But because the second half of the book is largely about Peter, Eleanor, and Mandy, it's all too tempting. Eleanor and Mandy continue to annoy me just as much as they did in Ella Enchanted, although I did learn more about why they are the way they are. I recognize that Mandy's life is probably an endless tedium of people asking that she grant them wishes that constitute big magic, which she says again and again that she will never perform. But does she have to be quite so stingy and inconsistent? And does everyone around her have to be quite so eager? Can she just relent in situations in which I feel she's truly being excessively cautious? And can everyone else just acknowledge that a fairy has a better grasp of which wishes might wreak havoc on the very fabric of their reality versus which ones will go generally unnoticed but make you smell a little bit better for the next 24 hours? I will forever love Mandy for her many contributions to my obsession with fantasy food, but I couldn't help but feel the same old irritation whenever she was on the page. While Lady Eleanor might be frustrating, we also gained fresh insight into how she became the doomed woman who passes away at the beginning of Ella Enchanted. She makes abysmal romantic choices, and while a good-hearted and kind person, seems somewhat dazzled by her own wealth and beauty to the point that it's hard for her to be logical about her decisions. We learn how she becomes magically trapped in a loveless marriage, and why she and Peter stay together, although they're polar opposites. I may even finally understand why she withdrew the unicorn hairs from her soup bowl. Although I will never be at peace with why Mandy allows her to do it. In spite of my critiques, I am so grateful that this book exists. It's incredible to have a prequel to Ella Enchanted, and I'm now eager to reread it again for the 200th time. While the Kyria presented in Ogre Enchanted isn't quite as rich as that of its predecessor, the insight into ogre culture was excellently done. I'm looking forward to a book that neatly catalogs Lucinda's widespread destruction and unique penchant for life ruining. And Peter is the fantasy narcissist we all deserve. Evie may be a straightforward character, but her love of healing is unique and her deep-seated goodness rings true. While Ogre Enchanted may not be my favorite book of Gail Carson Levine's, I truly appreciate getting to learn more about one of my favorite fantasy kingdoms, Ogre Style. So a few miscellaneous thoughts to wrap up. Um, the first is, in researching this episode, I discovered Fairest by Gail Carson Levine, which is set in Aortha. I don't understand how I missed this. Um, I've never read it. If you have, let me know how it is. I'm definitely going to be checking it out next. I'm, I have no idea what happened there. 
Um, another question, where is Lady Eleanor's family? <laughs> I don't understand how they let all of this befall her. Or maybe I'm just forgetting getting like a line about them being in the background or dead or something like that. Anyway, correct me, please. Last point is, is there another fantasy narcissist that I'm forgetting? Because I just can't really come up with one that isn't specifically that isn't specifically like a god or demon or witch yeah just like a regular dude who can't relate to human emotions um yeah curious about that so let me know because I'm racking my brain and can't come up with one thank you so much for listening I know this is a little weird and different um more criticism than recap um I will probably do more of these if you're interested. I am definitely going to be doing at least one more on Briar's book by Tamara Pierce um, because my love for that book runs deep and we covered Dodge's book in a full-length episode, but I wanted to keep going. Um, so that'll be out in the next couple weeks as well. And following that will be our full-length episode on Fire and Hemlock by Diana Wynne Jones. So if you liked this or if you hated it, please tell me um, so I can decide how to better shape these for the future. You can get in touch with us at dragonbabiespodcast at gmail.com, on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com, on Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast, and on Twitter at dragonbabiespod. And we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think. Let us know book requests, thoughts, wishes of your own curses or blessings that you would bestow upon denizens of your kingdom as a fairy. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.